नमस्ते जय हिंद वेलकम टू अनदर एडिशन ऑफ ए पॉडकास्ट विद स्मिता प्रकाश थैंक यू फॉर लाइकिंग और सब्सक्राइबिंग टू द चैनल आर टॉपिक टुडे इज ऑल थिंग्स चाइना आर गेस्ट टुडे इज लेफ्टिनेंट जनरल एस एल नरसिम्हन हु सर्वड एज डिफेंस अटैचे इन द इंडियन एम्बेसी इन चाइना फॉर थ्री ईयर्स He is qualified in the Chinese language and has been a keen observer of China for the past 18 years. So as you would have guessed, what we will discuss today is the relationship between India and China, which has been complex to say the least. An unresolved border dispute on the one hand and on the other, a steadily deepening economic engagement. The problem about understanding China is the secrecy under which the country operates. In the podcast today is also my colleague at ANI the national security editor Ajit Dubey General Narsimhan thank you so much for being part of the podcast uh, uh, Ajit and I are very happy that you're here today uh, though it's a very cold weather <laughs> compared to Coimbatore uh, but uh, obviously we want to ask you everything about China since you're a China watcher um I'd begin by asking you about this the stories which are coming in in the media about the Chinese growth engine uh, hitting a speed breaker is this true and what do you have to say as to why do you think it happened uh, firstly uh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast and ajit and i go sometime back when i was adgpa he was covering defense at that time and it's also it's always a pleasure to be on this podcast thank you so much um I'm also happy that you didn't call me a China expert. <laughs> Why is that? Uh because I personally feel that for anybody to feel expert on China is going to be a bit difficult to mm. justify that basically because uh, that country surprises yeah. all the time everybody. So China watcher is a better better word to use and I'm happy that you used it. Before uh, you <coughs> go further I want to tell you why because i heard uh, once a podcast uh, in america when i was listening in and there was this uh, lady who said that she'd been watching china she's a uh, academic and she'd been watching china and writing about it reading about it she'd studied china for almost two decades but she says that there were things which happened in 2023 rather from 2020 to 2023 which she never expected so she said the same thing that you can never know enough to be an expert on china i fully agree because mm. i have been watching china for 23 years now mm. but i also feel the same way that it could surprise you at any point in time that's the reason i mentioned that right sir coming to your question mm. uh first thing is you know most of the analysis that comes out now particularly on the economic growth of china which has slowed down uh is based on the premise that certain things have happened in the recent past one is the real estate crisis that they got into second is the unemployment issues that they have third is the lack of domestic consumption the which they wanted to boost is not happening so because of these reasons they seem to be thinking that china's growth rate is going to go down and it is there are some people who have also written to say that china's growth has already peaked and from here it will only go down there are some others who have said that you know this was expected like for example china grew at the rate of double digits for more than 3 decades and that kind of growth cannot be sustained mm. and therefore it is supposed to come down some writings about 6 7 years ago if you read you will find that they had already predicted that 
China's growth will come down to approximately 3 to 4 percent around 2030. So this is a path which they had uh, mm. they had actually predicted. Mm. But the problem happened with COVID pandemic. The COVID pandemic brought in fresh kind of problems for China and that has created some more issues. Even after having all this, mm. China has grown 5.2 percent this year, which is not a very, uh, I would say, a small size growth. And we need to keep in mind that China is growing on $17 trillion economy and 5.2% is approximately comes to about $850 billion, which is reasonable amount of growth. But that is not adequate for China because China is used to growing at a higher rate. And so that is the reason why there is a slowdown. The second problem that they have found very recently, I mean, on the real estate sector, what they are trying to do is basically to, uh, to, to that, that sector was over leveraged. So therefore, they had a they had a thing. They had a feeling that they should they should look at this sector a little more critically. And what they have been doing now is once that Evergrande issue happened today, actually Hong Kong uh, court has ruled that uh, Evergrande should shut down. Mm-hmm. There is a ruling that has come out of Hong Kong today. But what they have been doing is to find ways and means of sustaining this real estate sector. A little bit because real estate sector contributes to 29% of GDP of China. Mm-hmm. So they can't let such a large volume of a sector go down very quickly. So what they have been trying to do is to give some kind of uh, leverage, some kind of um, uh, facilities mm-hmm. to either either postpone these loan payments, etc., etc., rescheduling of the loans, etc., they have been trying to do. Recently, there was a report that the Chinese banks have actually shortlisted about 50-odd companies which are eligible for loans or funding to be given to them so that the real estate can catch up again. So real estate is something that they are trying to look into, but I think they'll allow it to play itself out of the trouble over a period of time is is what some analysts have already written. The other thing that you get to see is, you know, the, the, the feeling why people feel that China has not grown very well and is into trouble is also because the FDI is reducing into China, Hmm. the foreign direct investment reducing into China. But then the other argument is that does China need foreign direct investment now? Because the domestic consumption has not increased. So what people are doing is people are saving. So that saving is already available to China to deploy wherever they want to deploy. And so FDI is a thing that probably may or may not be required by China. So if you actually look at all this, in its holistic view, one thing is clear that China is not going to grow very high. Hmm. China is going to either grow around this level, because next year they are predicting around 4.5. So somewhere around 2030 and beyond, it will come down and stabilize around 3 to 4% is Hmm. what I I personally feel. So that is the way I see China's economy moving ahead. So if if its economy is not going to do as well as they thought they would or the world thought it would, then... um, is it not destined to lead the world as uh, Xi's dream was? Xi's dream is to achieve this by 2049. Hmm. That is the second centenary goal that China has got, wherein by 2049 they want to become a world power. Okay, The uh, only power? Uh, that they have not said hmm. in, their, in, their, uh, in, their, in their articulations. They have not said that they will be the only power because that they will never say it, Correct. even though they want to be one but they may not say it mm. but they want to become a world power by 2049 so they have a period of approximately starting from now about 25 years 
to do what they want to do with that particular thing and the um, the uh, not only the economic growth even if you look at the military reforms and the military reform that have been going on and the effort on increasing the jointness and the integrated operations and amphibious operations etc etc you find that is going to be time consuming mm. all these are going to take time so what comes to one's mind based on your question on you know whether they'll be able to lead i would like you to look at only the growth of us and other developed economies none of them grow very high percentages correct this year us has grown 2.5% yeah okay so compare that with 4. compare whatever? that with 5.2% but only difference will be us grew on 27 trillion dollars 2.5% oh. okay. whereas china grew on 5.2% on 17 trillion dollars there will be a some yeah. some adjustment that you need to do for that based on all this even if you see none of the developed economies grow beyond 3 to 4% in a year and look at germany this year it's mm. also not going doing too well mm. none of the economies are really doing too well so this is a this these are the years probably we are going through a lot of difficulties in the post covid session etc but please also look at how china's export is growing hmm. okay while domestic demand is not actually hmm. picked up the exports are growing hmm. but of course exports today only the national bureau of statistics reports have come out hmm. they say that you know since last year compared to last year exports have reduced by 5% is what they have said hmm. but how is china making up this gdp china is making up the gdp if the domestic consumption is not picking up it is making it up by exporting so therefore the export model which they wanted to avoid over a period of time is still not happening they wanted to avoid exporting so that you know the shocks of the world do not affect their growth that is not happening so they need to work around that they are working out some schemes etc but how they will be effective is something that we will have to wait and watch So let's go back to China's internal situation because you know when we talk about conflicts that China is engaged in we also need to talk about their dismal demographic situation here's a short primer reports are coming in about rapid aging of chinese society or the growing reluctance of women and couples to have children deaths outpacing births and a corresponding decline in the number of young working age couple and a boom in retirees all this leading to a problem about funding chronic illness care nursing homes and general retirement it feels like there is a crushing burden to the country's leaders especially with economic growth already slowing down that was a short primer for people who may not know about this but sir i want to come back to this as to uh, do you think that this is impacting on china's foreign policy this is a good question because this has been actually working in the minds of lot of people who are watching china today morning i was speaking to somebody again in one of the meetings i had china realized that they are going to have a demographic problem because of their one child norm that they had some time ago in 2015 onwards they have been trying to ease the mm. child bearing norms in in china yeah but the problem that the chinese government landed with is that the people were not keen on getting more children yeah you can tell people don't have children but what is the incentive the, that the to prob- have more the problem was yeah the problem why the couples were not actually uh, mm. taking on that line of having more children though of course there are some couples who are gone for more children but cost of bringing up a child in china was getting higher mm. so if your income was not if both husband and wife are working and then they were trying to sustain four of their parents 
and you have one child and you want to have one more child, then it was becoming a problem. That is why you find a lot of things which Mr. Xi Jinping did in 2021, uh, you know, banning tuitions, etc., tuition companies and other things, etc., was basically to ease the, the, the cost of bringing up the child. Hmm. Notwithstanding that, they have been trying to do this over a period of time to overcome this problem, but they have not been successful. Last two years, the replacement levels have not been reached. Uh, to, for replacement levels, you need to have 2.1% 1, 2 growth mm. every year. That has not happened. So, the pro, the, that is a clear indication that the population is going to decline over a period of time. A rough uh, back of the envelope calculation will tell you somewhere around 2050-60, you will have 600 to 700 million people in China who will be above 60 who needs to be looked after. Mm. There are two ways of looking at it. One is, like you said, you, their, their children have to look after them. That is one point. The other point, this, the state. state has to look for you know, support for the elderly people in terms of pension schemes and things like that. The, China's pension scheme has not been working very well. The returns have not been very high. So they have an issue there that they need to deal with. The other thing is the children are actually already having the burden. They'll have to have more burden. So this is one aspect of it. Compare this with unemployment. Hmm. Now, today, in the 16 to 8, 24 group, age group, you find unemployment is appro approximately up to 20%. Hmm. The latest report says 14.2%. For about one year, it was it was on 20-21%. On, uh, Such a large percentage of youth hmm. not getting employed is going to give you problems. Okay. On one hand, your population is reducing. On the other hand, your unemployment is existing. This study needs to be made. I don't think anybody has studied this together. If unemployment is increasing and the number of people to seeking employment is decreasing, how is it going to play out in the long run? That, I think, is a detailed study that needs to be made. We have not done it as yet. That may give you some leverage to say that, you know, unemployment may not be so high and even the demographic thing may probably cancel this to some extent at some point in time. Hmm. It may or may not happen. That study needs to be done. Notwithstanding this, in the in the run up to this 2049, this is going to be a problem for China. Mm -hmm. You will not have skilled labor. You will have, you will have less people looking at uh, looking at employment. In addition to that, there is another phenomenon which is which we get to see in China today. That is known as thangping. Thangping is just lying flat. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do any work. Okay, this is a tendency you get among to get to see in the net. If you go, you will see this. Mm -hmm. This and then they call it something known as involution. No, Why what is I mean, this uh, thing? This is what? Uh, like a general strike? I don't want to work. It's not a general strike. It's it is a just a youth just, just not wanting to wanting to do work. work. Why? J just like that, they want to relax. But they the get point, money. Point is, uh. point is, if I have money to eat today, why mm. am I running around? And similarly, the other other way of other way the young, young people are looking at in China is what they call as Neichuan. Mm. That is you no know, involution in the sense that why am I running into this competition? It's a rat race. I am actually running hard to stay at the same place. Employment opportunities are not there. Why, I, why, why should I do this? Hmm. That is the second way of looking at it. Hmm. So you find such tendencies coming up in the youth in China. So that is something, again, which is worrying. In fact, the Communist Party statements and Mr. Xi Jinping himself is on record to say that you know, people should not do this. So will they take <clears> in more people in the standing army? Because right now we, we used to read that, you know, because of the one-child policy, they don't have 
that uh, the the standing army they don't have replacements for their troops do you think that they would have more people joining that i don't know that may not be a correct statement to make hmm. the pla was never finding it short to get people okay what they were trying to get what they were running short was to get people with degrees and others degrees and above qualifications mm. they had given lot of incentives for those kind of graduates to come and join the pla and that they have been giving even incentives now you come and do work in the pla you go back masters degree will be able to give you seat etc etc lot of incentives are being given to get people mm. the problem of conscription which you are actually mentioning is actually that you get to see in many countries today taiwan was having a conscription of only 4 months hmm. now they increased it to 8 months but that's because of the threat perception from china right no but then it should not be four then you know in that case it should be a longer period of that's training right. for you hmm. but they were doing 4 months actually conscription uh, that means in a year only 4 months they do training the the army does training and then thereafter they go into the civilian field so that kind of a thing may not work very well for uh, for a, like you know what happened in russia ukraine Hmm. Russian Russian army have had one year conscription that you find that it was not adequate during this war which is taking place hmm. so notwithstanding what we are saying the PLA is still going through the conscription process what they have done now is to increase the recruitment from once a year to twice a year hmm. that they are doing already they have started doing that so they will overcome that particular problem i don't think recruitment into PLA is going to be a major problem they need a war to keep their soldiers busy uh taiwan yes. is watching that i know i know what very very question is leading <laughs> me to but uh the question is lot of people have written about this you know at, at least in india i have seen people writing that you know in case he wants a diversion from mm. internal issues or in case he want experience for this uh, pla he might do something on the border but my own reading is of of china and the chinese people is that they are practical number 1 hmm. number 2 they need something of an assurance of victory that is number 2 every country that goes to of war course, needs that of course at least a fair chance of victory hmm. let me put it this way and the third thing is that you know if you look at china today hmm. he has actually opened up to many friends he has hmm. opened up south china sea his relations with the us is still on the mend it's not mended correctly as yet you have you have the one belt one road initiative which is running into trouble you have already a india border which is uh, which is already in 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 question so you have too many friends to actually open up with so to say that he will probably launch something for experience i would say may not be correct so you are saying uh, the chinese people military everybody the leadership they are practical so why did why do you think they did what they did in two, uh, 2020 the aggression 2020 what happened was um, i would say that it is um, it is an it is a face off that escalated and it escalated beyond our expectations basically because uh, for the first time in 45 years we suffered casualties in 2020 to that extent it happened and chinese came in in four places as as you are aware and as ma'am is also aware the issue that comes up is that it happened then yangse happened in december 22 but yangse was a case which is actually an older case which is you know which which happened again yeah but beyond that galwan if you look at you have 
what is happening on that border today is that China is increasing its infrastructure. The additional troops which had come into that area have remained in that in that yeah, area. Yeah. That is what is the talks are going on even today after 20 rounds of talks that you know thing is not complete as yet. So to that extent, if you see that it is a face off that went out of control, I would put it that way. Out of the four areas that they had come in, they have pulled back in some areas. The disengagement has taken place in four points, which which you are aware. Other than that, of course, two other points are under 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 negotiations even now. So if you look at it, I think it is a it is a thing which went out of control. I'm saying even now that since the line of actual control is not mutually accepted by both the sides, face-offs might occur even in future and we need to be careful about it. This is what I've been saying right from 2020 when I went on the interviews many times that time. Onwards, I've been saying this, that we need to be careful and we need to be cautious. We need to be looking after the LAC very, very uh, closely. Mm. You spoke about the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, with, uh, if you keep that in perspective as to, you know, this, it was an ambitious project, but at that time they didn't probably know that the, the roadblocks that will come to their economy. Do you think they were over ambitious with the Belt Road Initiative? And uh, do you think that she will take a back seat on this now? He will go slow on the BRI? Okay. Uh, on the One Belt, One Road Initiative, I call it One Belt, One Road. Over. Okay. okay. Oh. One Belt, One Road initiative initially started in 2013 when he announced in, in the Nur Sultan Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. And then it started. The, the thing that we saw around that time was any project that China was doing was clubbed into One Belt, One Road initiative. Hmm. Any project in any country that they were doing, everything was getting clubbed into One Belt, One Road initiative. Yeah. And they started with with lot of uh, lot of gusto and then they put in lot of money so far my my understanding and calculation is that they have invested approximately about 1 trillion dollars into that project but if you look at the investment starting from 2019-20 onwards you find there is a downward trend in the investments in one belt one road initiative the reasons are two one is that china's economy itself is not doing so well and so they won't have probably put so much of money Two, there was some pushback from some countries on some projects. Hmm. Like Malaysia initially said they don't want that project, then they went to renegotiated and given it, etc. While many countries are having this pushback kind of a thing to renegotiate the loans, rescheduling of the return, returning of the money to the uh, to the uh, to the Chinese government, etc. One thing which strikes me is that they have not pulled out of many projects. Hmm. They have stayed on on those projects, renegotiated, reduced the scope, reduced the cost of it. They have stayed on in the project. Mm. So to that extent, to my way of thinking, One Belt, One Road initiative is here to stay. But it is likely to store, slow down. It is likely to uh, probably look into some kind of transparency. If That's what we are looking at. You know, mm. One of the reasons why we didn't go into, one was the sovereignty issue. Mm. The other one was all the contracts were not transparent. They were all bilateral. So that is another thing that was also a reason. So in the first, second and third BRI forums that they've had, they have said that they will revisit this and see if they're more transparent and things like that. But on the ground, there are no reasons to believe that that has happened. Hmm. So to my way of thinking, One Belt, One Road initiative will be there. 
it will progress slowly but it will not probably have the gusto with which it started in 2013-14 that okay. is the way i would sum it up so uh, this cpec uh, like we have been reading reports about it how this is going to help china how this is going to change face of pakistan what results has it given to them what is the present status because last we like we have been hearing reports about corruption uh, army pakistan army officers getting involved in it uh, people even in pakistan are terming it that they have accepted slavery terms from the chinese so what's the status and is it in any way helping the chinese or the pakistanis because like uh, getting your stuff uh, at Uh, the gwadar port and bringing by crossing high mountain valleys and all those things it, it, was it even practical to have <clears> this <throat> or was it just to corner india or to just say that we have a link road open see the origins of this you should look at in the karakoram highway karakoram highway started in 59 finished somewhere around 78 79 then it doesn't function sir the cpc when they planned it it had two arms coming into pakistan one is the eastern route the other one is the western route via balochistan balochistan the eastern route is the one where maximum development has taken place as of now the western route is still still under under process if you look at the money allocation of 62 billion dollars which was supposed to be given to cpc almost 35 billion dollars was for thermal power plants that sui gas line area many many power plants were many supposed to be many power plants yeah some of them were actually the the um, early harvest kind of a project so they did that and some of them are functioning some of them are not functioning as of now i mean there are issues there and the cost of production of electricity was far higher than what pakistan was expecting the other projects of mainline railway railway line and the metro etc etc those are again being negotiated they created a group which sits together and meets both the sides meet each other and then decide what needs to be done as a periodic meeting that takes place so far our as i mean my assessment is that somewhere around 30 to 32 billion dollars has been invested in pakistan as far as china is concerned and cpc cpc was to my way of thinking is not a project which was meant for um which is meant for uh, i would say economic benefits of china to my way of thinking it is another access to arabian sea mm. that is what they are more important with so if you look at look at the map today of india china there pakistan this side myanmar this side you have a china pakistan economic corridor coming to the west of india you have a china myanmar economic corridor coming to the east of east of east india, of, uh, india. string of pearls as it, they say it, string of pearls contains other things oh. as the as busal and hamilton yeah. made this report in 2004 we don't subscribe to that view of uh, string of pearls in addition recently the thailand prime minister when he went to china has mentioned that they are going to probably create a canal come road etc along that crossed must which they were planning to have earlier so these are all if you look at the map and then sit behind and see you find one line coming to the west one line coming to the east like this basically it appears that china was wanting to bypass india and come to indian ocean region hmm. the origin of this 
is 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 actually rooted in something known as the malaka dilemma which mr hu chinta had enumerated in 2004 he says malaka is going to be a dilemma for us because mm-hmm. there's a choke point kind of a thing so these actions will also avoid malaka mm. so if you look at it from that strategic point of view while it could have economic benefits in some form or the other like for example gwadar could function as some base at some point of time in future they have said that they'll create a chinese city with 50000 houses and 500000 people living there what is the reason why a chinese city should be created in gwadar hmm. right so it could become a base at some point in time not ready as yet some point in time it might become so the aim is strategic one is strategic that is to get to the indian ocean two you have the economic uh, some kind of returns will come out of this in any case may not be to the full extent because pakistan has been going to china to reschedule the loans etc already yeah. uh, so that money is not going to go back to china full uh, that is a given but they will get some some returns out of it so i think if you, you look at it from good luck with that trying <laughs> to get money from pakistan yeah at the moment pakistan itself is looking for money everywhere so that is going to take a long time yeah. because this we predicted even in 2017 when the dawn paper actually leaked the draft cpc document hmm. which was studied around that time in great amount of detail and you found that you know the returns uh, the, the the money that has to be returned by pakistan hmm. will start biting it from the year 2021-22 was the uh, assessment that was made even at that time so that is happening even now Yeah. They are in no position to actually return that kind of money. So they are going to get into trouble because of that. So I want to talk about that uh, 20th Congress of the CCP that was held and the impact that had on Chinese politics and on China's external policy. Uh, here's a short primer for our audience before that. The 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party CCP was held in October 2022. It was quite naturally seen as a historic occasion, but the high drama that happened made it more than an event. It marked the start of Xi Jinping's third term as the top leader of China and ended the post-Mao convention that top leader retires after serving two terms of 5 years each. The closing ceremony video showed Xi's predecessor as general secretary of the CCP Hu Jintao being escorted out of the meeting visibly against his wishes this was captured on camera and broadcast live but never shown again on chinese media other top leaders at the event kept calm and carried on as if the drama was not happening xi's control over everything in china started then and is complete now so is this right is she's hold complete or is it tenuous right now what is your reading it's a very good question you see if you look at that video hmm xi jinping was sitting without any kind of emotion or anything mr hu chintao tried to look at some paper the person next to him tried to tell him not to do that and then mr hu chintao went and spoke something to mr xi jinping and then he was he was yeah. guided out that is the video actually it showed the way yeah. it showed it but then if you look at the results of the 20th party congress hmm. you look at the politburo politburo hmm. the number of people who who allegiance to mr xi jinping you look at the central committee which is of the 300 people look at the way they are actually uh, formed hmm. whose loyalties were to whom etc if you look at a detailed analysis which we did at some point in time 
to me it appeared that xi jinping was on a strong footing with all this politburo standing committee politburo and the central committee and alternate central committee coming up together if you analyze each and every person in that particular group one could make out that xi jinping is on a strong wicket as far as that is concerned that is the structure of the entire then came people's uh, the pla and mm. the central military commission you see the way that the central military commission was reorganized mm. into that seven people which are there earlier seven people even now but the way the people were actually put into that vice chairmanship you know, the present one of the vice chairmen of central military commission was not in the central military commission earlier he was brought in newly mm. and put there and then the bottom four which they have the members that they have that is again one of them of course has been now uh, sacked that is li shangfu was the mm. defense minister yeah. he has been sacked recently and so that position is yet to be filled so you find the argument that you know that that particular video was a, was a, was a indication that mr xi jinping may not be on sure footing some i don't buy that argument mm. he was actually sitting very pretty and you find that the structure the way he has brought in people into people politburo standing committee politburo the central committee etc all owe allegiance to it him it is it is most of them owe allegiance to him Mm. so there were reports immediately after the analysts started writing in china there used to be some factions which used to be working in this political arena uh, one was the shanghai clique one was the thaits which is the princelings the other one is the communist youth league immediately after the 20th party congress analysts had started writing to say that you know this factionalism in china at least mm. temporarily is gone mm. it might come back at a later stage when you find the next five five after five years it might come back but at the moment it is not there is the kind of writing that started appearing hmm. so if you put all this i don't think xi jinping was on a weak wicket uh, on that particular time so he all. didn't <coughs> either then or now he hasn't uh, he ha- the dimin- it hasn't diminished his his uh, goals for uh, his goal rather for do- world domination it's not impacted at all nothing that does not impact see hmm. uh, the the other thing that i want to mentioned through you to the reader uh, to, to the people who are watching this uh, podcast is that the goals of china are not set by one person this 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 twin goal the twin centenary goals etc have been actually been there earlier okay it is handed over to him the mm. way he is implementing is different mm. but most of the thing that he is doing today have been handed over to him over a period of time but he is implementing them in his own way that is the way i think we need to see this so what is the xi jinping way xi jinping way is to is to uh, is to uh, ensure whatever tasks have been given to him whatever the goals have been given to him push it hard towards achieving it that is his way of doing it i would say the previous two leaderships did not push so hard but mm-hmm. he is pushing it hard so it's in national interest or is it in his personal interest that only mr xi jinping can answer but my own understanding is i think both will be there because he's the such reason, a powerful the way, leader the yeah. way he the way he got his third term hmm. a lot of people say unprecedented third term but i don't say it is unprecedented because mao zedong was there for a very long period of time but after mao there's after been no mao there has not hmm. been there and so it is not unprecedented okay. it is a third term he has Correct. got so he has got a third term he may get a fourth term we don't know hmm. but the fact of the matter remain the very fact that he has got a third term and aspiring to have term limits waived he has already got the term limits waived 
So to me, mm. it appears that there is also a personal uh, goal mm. of seeing through China to whatever goals that they have established for themselves, and he seems a personal role in in him for that. But you know, when a when a leader tries to do something like this, get a third term, fourth term, whatever, uh, and have these, you know, very far-reaching goals, which is world domination and all, I would think they would a leader like that would try to build alliances. Instead, he's out to crush. Whatever alliances that could have been done, isn't it? Uh, don't you see that there's somewhere a misnomer in what a leader aspires for himself and his country? Uh, that is again a again a good question. If you look, take your mind back and look at who were all allies of China earlier, hmm. and who are all allies of China now, do you see a major difference? See, I would think that one of the major thing is that. America has backed out. Europe, nobody wants. Asia has totally crumbled. Europe, you, I would, I would request you to rethink on Europe because Europe has got a lot of, lot of only business e- economic, alliances, economic, yeah. economic linkages there. Yeah. Uh, almost whatever amount of trade that uh, China does with US. Equal amount or little more is being done Which with Europe. Which they are now rethinking, <laughs> right? Like Italy has backed out backed of the. Out. Italy over. has backed out of One Belt One Road one, initiative. Yeah, so they that backed out. We are seeing trains going directly to London uh, from uh, this uh, from uh, China. There's a lot of uh, business interest in uh, rest of the Europe also. Yeah, they. they That's how their medicines and their. It goes to Rotterdam. Most of the Their vaccines were reaching like that, right? With yeah. those trains. Most But now they're rethinking many other countries. So I would think that those alliances, some of them are there because you can't, you can't just suddenly cut off alliances. But you look at the what has happened with the South China. You look at you know any of those countries. They're subjugated to a large extent, but they're looking out. If nobody is there to help, look at what what they've done with Australia. Right, so so many countries with which who they were in alliance with, now they are in a state of not just competing but literally aggression in may with many countries. But uh, look at uh, Australia-China relations now. Mm. It was it was it had suffered a setback. Yeah. But it seems to be coming back to some mm. kind of uh, normalcy as far as trade and other relations. Yeah. Politically, there may be issues which mm. which which I am sure every country has got something or the other. And same is the case with Japan. Same mm. is the case with South Korea. Same mm. is the case with, of course, even Taiwan has got a lot of lot of economic lot of, relationship yeah. with China. Correct. On the economic relationships, I don't think a major setback has happened. Mm. On the political issues, yes, there mm. have been some issues that have happened because of which China's political relations seem to be suffering in some point in time. But um, my own reading is these are all, you know, faces. Mm. I would say. Like for example, people used to say, you know, some time ago, around 2010-11, the Defense Secretary of uh, U.S. was not allowed entry to China. Somebody used to question me, "No, this relationship is going bad." You say, "Wait for some time," because what happens is these are all not permanent. These are all will change as per the situation that is hmm. moving around. International relationships are actually not a fixed kind of a thing. It will keep, keep moving, keep manipulating, keep maneuvering. So to that extent, I think we need to wait and watch this. Is that what you did when you were military attaché there for three years? Uh, it, was it like everything had to be wait and watch because things were very fluid? There, it was quite difficult actually. Um, you know, yeah, that good. time in China hmm. was a different China than what it is today. Hmm. Okay, the uh, which years were these, sir? These are two thousand two to two thousand five. Hmm. 
those years were slightly different basically mm. because that is the time when china was growing in economy china's military power has just started growing it has not grown to the extent what it is today and uh, china was still having trying to have good relationships with everybody including india around that time mm. that is the time mr vajpayee went and then you know that mm. relationship started mending a little bit mm. so situation around that time was slightly different than what it is particularly now yeah. but even then in you could just do things by observing yeah. because there no way you could interact with people etc which was restricted so our interactions with the pla used to be single window one one contact point used to be there that is where you need to interact with that is the way i think even now they do it that way only yeah. so most of the things we did by observation and reading i know lot of newspapers and lot of magazines when it comes you read them and then you get to know when you move around then you observe and then you do that one thing we ensured was that you know the um, you know there were occasions when some of the, the military attaches or naval attaches went closer to pla establishments and they had mm. to they had to be uh, taken they they were they were actually dealt with so those kind of things we never used to do observe clearly and then wherever you go in civil areas markets you can observe a lot of things mm. so that is how you picked up a lot of stuff mm. which you could make your mind with you know how they think how they behave and things like that okay because there's uh, it's still like uh, foggy right like when with pakistan when you think of pakistan as an adversary you kind of know the mind of your enemy to some extent i think uh, people in india even if we don't have a military background kind of know how the pakistani mind works but with china there seems to be like like a wall literally i mean i i don't want to use that word because it's so typical to talk about a wall in china but then it is like that as how does their mind work how does it work because see i mean so many things when when xi jinping was here you know when we he was being fated but the indian prime minister was here and they were uh, on our borders they were uh, they were attacking us at that stage how does that mind work how does the chinese mind work chinese mind draws a lot of their lessons from the history like the successful dynasties the kind of tactics and the kind of thing that they followed is there's a lot of drawdown on that to to be used even today subterfuge sun tzu and all that I'll not not, not only sun sun tzu is only one aspect sun tzu is actually talked about out of war hmm. and he had certain stratagems and there they have another thing known as 36 stratagems hmm. which they which they tried to follow other than that also there are a lot of strategies which the successful dynasties which followed earlier seems to have influence in thinking even today hmm. so if you i think you need to whenever an action takes place i think you need to start going back and keep looking at those historical context how how it, in what context that it gets fits in and then how you can analyze it as something that you need to be looking at ah oh, okay so that's how one reads the chinese that mind. is how one needs to read because most the hmm. most of the thing that happen today is we we tend to analyze episodically hmm. something happens now you try, tend to analyze that correct but i think you need to go back in history and then link it so china's expansionist policies which are currently on or their strategic thinking that also you have to see in a historical context i do agree 
because there is something known as a weak strong strategy that used to be have they used to have in earlier times please explain that that is simply if the central government is strong in china the territory will expand if the central government is weak the territory will shrink mm. because that time of course they used to go on horses and then they used to have a limit of expansion but that is the way it used to it used to function if the central government is strong then they'll pushing and then the nomads in the in the peripheral areas will get pushed hmm. when the government became weaker the nomads they call they used to call them sing new they used to push towards the center so this contraction and expansion was something that was there even earlier so if if today if the central government is power powerful in china you hmm. may find that that power expanding expanding outward so i'm obviously now going to come to taiwan sir now that you've given me the cue <laughs> what's going to happen because there was some who was saying that you know in 2024 um and there so many articles you must have seen this also <clears> that <throat> in 2024 over 50 countries going in uh for elections and when the world is busy china plans its attack when you know whether it was covid situation whether it is now and with america also busy with their domestic uh, election and with so many countries in europe um india also um do you see that uh, they will use this period it it is extremely difficult to predict anything in today's world because nobody expected russia to go into ukraine, ukraine. at some point in time or nobody expected hamas to Correct. launch attack on israel it's very difficult to predict so that's what i'm saying but russia but, is busy you, uh, you, we have the ukraine war you have red sea in conflict you have all this conflict areas going on and you have elections so why not it is not so simple okay the reason for that is taiwan is across a strait hmm okay the militarily if you have to do it then it comes with lot of other baggage with you hmm. that i don't want to go into the details of it because there are, you can you can discuss it till cows come home on that particular issue but i'm not sure whether china is ready to do that now okay but again as i said nothing can be ruled out in today's world and uh, we'll have to see when it comes to that so when you say now you obviously as you saying it's just a matter of when i'm not uh, i i i see that you're wanting to wanting me to commit on that but i am not going to commit basically because okay. of a, basically because of a reason that it is going to be extremely difficult to predict huh. the it is not only the um, it is not only the international situation that one needs to be worried about in, a, in an operation like that china needs to do an amphibious operation in case it wants to forcefully uh, forcefully annex taiwan that kind of an operation is is something which is very very difficult to plan and execute but the intention is there right no the intention they have been saying as per the statements strategically they may not uh, have but i'm sure they have a plan of action ready uh, they may be having i'm not saying that they don't have a plan there of action there is a war plan in place in but the point is when to do it and what are the repercussions is that it that may be we don't know hmm. whether the plans exist plans don't exist because so far at hmm. least till some time ago the stated hmm. policy was uh peaceful reunification of taiwan that was what was being talked about and they always used to say even now they are saying it that we don't rule out force hmm these two things come simultaneously like in hong most kong of, most of the statements 
Hong Kong was a different ball game because Hong Kong was given There to them a, back as their own territory. But a peaceful and initially they had said that we will not it won't be that kind of a unification where Hong no, Kong No, they will said be part one one country it. two systems. Yeah. That one country two system didn't work very well in Hong Kong. Therefore it had repercussions in the previous election in didn't Taiwan. Didn't work well means what? It didn't work well as far as far as China is China's. concerned it didn't work well. No. The uh, the way it was perceived, like for example, when they passed that Hong Kong security law in 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 2019, that is the time uh, elections in Taiwan were supposed to take place, okay, and the way that China enforced that law and the protests that came up post that law was being implemented, actually mm. told um, conveyed to the I think probably to the Taiwan people that you know this one country two systems is not going to work. Mm. and that seems to have had an imp- implication on the election results around that time hmm. a lot of people have written on it i mean it's all available you can read it hmm. so that one country two systems is something which which is not working as far as hong kong is concerned the same thing has been offered to taiwan also one country two systems but i think that is also not going to work i mean that is going to be difficult to make it work okay uh, sir uh, uh, you pr- talked about taiwan their relations now coming back again to this 2020 standoff sir you said uh, we have to be careful along the lac and uh, like you you uh, you have headed the triple cs also sir you have watched china very closely uh, da and post after that all the tenures you were also the three core commander now we have been talking to the chinese uh today we interviewed the chief uh, he said the situation is stable but uh, um, like not fully sorted out yeah so where do we go from here where can things go because we see in between there are activities uh, in bhutan where they want to come very close to our territory we see activities in arunachal along that border in eastern ladakh so where can, where do we go from here what can we expect in coming days as ma'am said that uh, this is the time the whole world is busy even we are getting into that uh, arabian sea red sea turmoil uh, the americans are getting regularly attacked by their warships are getting attacked uh, today they have casualty they have suffered casualties in uh, jordan there is so much of turmoil so uh, here we have a live the, the standoff is entering fourth year where we do we go from here see we have made one thing clear to the to the chinese side that unless we have some stability on the line of actual control and we go back to the pre 2020 incident positions and we go through the three process of disengagement de-escalation and then go moving back things are not going to move politically this has been conveyed many number of times both in track 1 officially track 1.5 2 everything we have so there that is that negotiations may take place negotiations may give some results we don't know at this point in time negotiations are on that's what we know that is why i said since the line of actual control is not a clearly demarcated line on ground and both the sides seems to have some differences on it we need to be careful in ensuring that such incident that happened in 
say both in Dolam in 2017 and Galwan in 2020 do not occur again in the sense that petrols are going if they come on a face off we need to ensure that they don't escalate to the level that it went into Galwan kind of incident and the second thing that we need to be looking at is more closely at the line of actual control is to ensure that no incursions or no transgressions take place along the line of actual control. This is as far as the line of actual control and the military kind of things. In the meanwhile, you you improve your capabilities, you improve your, improve your uh, infrastructure. Those things should continue normally. That which, both sides are doing. Which they are continuing normally. This is one side of the story. The other side is we have dependencies on China economically and so you find the trade deficit increasing. There again you need to do a lot of work on, you know, the PLA scheme government has announced. That is something which is starting to catch speed now. There are a lot of things to, uh, the Ministry of Defense has come out with a negative list of not importing from anywhere else so that, you know, you improve the capabilities within the country. So within the country you need to improve the capabilities to sustain yourself and try to become economically stronger, manufacturing needs to improve. Those things are being looked into on the different scale. So it is not one particular aspect of thing that you need to look at when you want to deal with this kind of an issue. You need to have a holistic kind of an approach where you have the military doing its job, the government doing its job, the industry doing its job. It is a, it is a kind of a, I would say, we keep saying it whole of a nation approach. I think this needs a whole of a nation approach to do this. So you talk and that is what is on at this point. Multi-pronged approach, yes. Uh, you talked about uh, track 1, track 1.5. To our viewers and listeners, could you explain what are these tracks? You've been part of uh, track 2 also. So what are these tracks? Track 1, track 2? Track 1 is typically official to official. Okay. In the sense that, you know, if, uh, if, if representative of the Ministry of External Affairs from Indian side... And the Minister of MOFA, they call it, Minister of Foreign Affairs of China side, officials, they talk to each other, that is track one. Anything that happens between government to government, government officials to government officials, it is track one. Track 1.5 is slightly lower in the sense that there may be some participation of the officials, but there will be academics, there will be people from the industry, people like that could be there, depending on the subject that you that you discuss with. That is 1.5. Track two is purely academical, industrialist, those kind of a grouping, hmm. that think tanks, only think tanks and not the not anybody, any participation from the government that is track 2. So, right. track 1, 1 1.5 and track 2 are generally non, known as like this. So, can you tell us that what is the role that diplomacy plays in diffusing these kind of uh, volatile situation that we have uh, on the line of actual control? Plenty. I mean... Um, you take your mind back to, say, 2017, the, the moment that incident happened, the other resolution took place on the diplomatic level. Hmm. Similarly, you mentioned about the boundary incidents, the border incidents taking place when Mr. Xi Jinping was visiting, Mr. Li Keqiang was visiting here. Those again got dissolved, uh, resolved uh, hmm. by diplomacy. So, diplomacy plays a very major role in dealing with this, definitely. And uh, over a period of time, what we get to see is that it is both the diplomacy and the military going hand in hand actually is working out better. Like for example, uh, the talks on the ground in Galwan are actually core, core commander level talks, the military to military level talks. But 
there is a joint foreign ministry representative out there so it is a joint kind of an effort there also which works very well and diplomacy has been actually been the bedrock of all the resolutions that we have been doing what do we expect from them because uh, as journalists as laymen we keep reading oh this is the 16th round of talk this is the 36th so people wonder what are these talks achieving this just talk we have not had and, a and change sir, along with that a lot of people ask that it since you know you know china better than many of us do what did the chinese leadership achieve by doing what it did in 2020 what was what was the outcome for them like we uh, we responded very strongly swiftly to whatever they did and galwan uh, sort of uh, i have seen uh, lot of people in foreign countries also talking about strong indian response and uh, but what did china achieve by doing this that is why i said it's a one off case which went wrong there on the face offs when it happened uh what they achieved is something which we by that what we achieved is what they achieved is something that we will not be able to predict but what we can predict now is what they are doing after galwan happened look at the way they have actually gone about creating infrastructure for people to stay troops to stay in so eastern iraq etc is et is that a response to the kalash operations of august 29 that these guys are like they, did they find 29? us on August the twenty ninth August, 29th, August uh, when we occupied the Kailash ranges. Is that a response to that that they have started building infrastructure so fast and so close? No, to you need to take your mind back even before that. When they came into Pankungso, you found that they twenty twenty sir. Same twenty twenty when mm. they came into Pankungso, they came to the finger four. Then they had started creating helipads, temporary structures for staying, etc. They had already started that. but as part of disengagement they also pulled it out they took took all those and went back i think what has happened is that till some time back we used to wonder why chinese have not created any defenses across and things like that so at that time my assessment used to be that you know it will happen in time whenever the time correct time comes up it will happen so i think now what has happened is that because of the incident that we have had both dolam as well as galwan that seems to have given them the uh, given them the uh, impetus to improve the infrastructure both in eastern ladakh and in other areas and also to create some accommodation for troops to come and stay so that is something that has happened as a part of thing. what they achieved out of galwan is something which is very difficult to mention like for example lot of interviews have taken place in which people have said that you know even the number of casualties that they suffered cannot be predicted very clearly we don't know actually speaking mm. it's very difficult to predict because we saw some structures going but how many people died how many people survived we don't know that happened in must have been in the hospital and they have, they have claimed only four of them died so it's very difficult to actually predict these things actually also would i ask sir what what <laughs> are these talks the several rounds of okay, talks okay that 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 question yeah, you are on yeah. i'll tell you what the problem i find is in our impatience our impatience we waited how many years okay please take your mind back to samdrungcho how many years did you wait you waited 7 years hmm. so this is not new okay that is the point i was wanting to tell you and second thing is we should we should not be in a hurry to get into a solution because in the process of trying to look for a solution very quickly you may tend to compromise which we don't want okay. and and sir uh, coming to this point of being impatient a lot of people say that uh, 
like uh, we see on social media people commenting on these issues that uh, india may want to resolve this ongoing standoff before elections uh, by the time we go into elections this should be resolved is is, is, is that i am not sure i i don't think the government i don't think is thinking on those lines i think government is looking at our country's interests and i don't think they are going to probably give up on anything because mm. of elections are coming or otherwise i don't see that uh, at least i don't see that mm. the reason why i'm telling you is you know you will also hear this the talks went for 12 hours mm. talks went for 14 hours 14 hours you can straight away reduce that 14 hours period to 50% because interpretation has to take place okay ha mm. huh. language right? huh. so i am saying something somebody else has to interpret so that takes time so 50% of the time actually is taken mm. off from that so it comes to 7 hours so you have if you are 7 hours you will have some break in between mm. so you look at it generally it come to about 4 to 5 hours of real talking actually mm. speaking so don't get in a, don't get worried by this you know long hours of talks etc don't don't also get worried by 20 20th level of 20th round has happened 21st round have happened we should get what we want so let it take 100 rounds it doesn't matter that is what we need to be looking at and an example as i quoted you take for example samdrungchu it happened in 86 finally by the time we resolved it it was i think 93 or 94 93. Mm. so we need to have patience so what do we <coughs> actually want i mean you know like with pakistan we say ha we know we want pok back you know <coughs> what i mean we in the sense like most indians would say ha humko ye वापस लेना है हाँ हमको अगर हमारे दस लोग मारे तो उनका बीस लोग मारना चाहिए यू नो वट आई मीन लाइक आई गेट दैट बट इन विच मोस्ट इंडियन नो वॉट इंडिया गोल इज वॉट डू वी नो एज फार एज चाइना इज कंसर्ट वी वॉन्ट प्री दिस फिफ्टी टू फिफ्टी सिक्स टू वॉट डू वी वॉट इज द बेंच मार्क दैट वी है क्वेश्चन टू बी रिसोल्व इन फुल is not going to be easy it is going to take time it is very complex each sector has got a different uh, connotation and each sector is 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 difficult by itself okay what we have been telling the chinese post 2020 is simply that let us come to an understanding that on the line of actual control we will not both the sides will not change the status quo unilaterally we want this kind of an assurance so that at least the lsc is stable the other thing that we we have been telling them in fact our foreign minister has been telling them very frequently wherever he has been asked about this is that we are not looking at the resolution of the boundary today to start rest of the things we are looking for far less is what he has been saying that far less is basically to come to an understanding on line of actual control that we will not change the status quo unilaterally and we will maintain peace and tranquility along the line of actual control which has been signed in all the agreement that you have signed from 1993 96 2005 2000 13 etc so that is something that if it, if it could be done then we can think of you know looking at other issues going forward hmm. but since that is not happening that is go- that is the thing that we need to be insisting on to say that you know come to this at least so that you know then we can make a move forward Hmm. Uh, sir uh, like uh, uh, recently about 4 5 months back we had gone to the LAC hmm. uh, close to the LAC and we saw a lot of indigenous weapon systems deployed there the dhanush guns the vehicles and all uh, 
हाउ लाइक चाइना ऑल्सो इन लास्ट फ्यू डेकेड्स हैज कम टू अ पॉइंट वेयर इट इज़ नाउ इट फर्स्ट डेवलप्ड अ मिलिट्री मसल इन मिलिट्री हार्डवेयर मैन्युफैक्चरिंग एंड टुडे इट इज़ नॉट जस्ट यूजिंग देम इट्स ऑल्सो एक्सपोर्टिंग देम टू डिफरेंट कंट्रीज एंड इट्स ऑल्सो यूज एज मिलिट्री डिप्लोमेसी लॉट ऑफ आर नेबरिंग कंट्रीज हैव बिन गेटिंग देयर वेपन सिस्टम्स एंड ऑल हाउ इम्पॉर्टेंट इज इट फॉर इंडिया टू गेट इन टू दैट पोजिशन इट इज़ एक्सट्रीमली इम्पॉर्टेंट एंड द प्रोसेस ऑफ दिस स्टार्टेड अबाउट ऑलमोस्ट टेन ईयर्स अगो that is why you find this defense ministry coming out with negative list etc which you cannot import the reason for that is those things can be developed indigenously or produced indigenously within the country and slowly we need to increase that percentage okay even today we have a dependence on russian equipment and it is going to persist for some more time it is not going to go overnight okay slowly and steadily we have to start building things in the country so that is why you find we went in for technology transfer from ge414 for the aircraft engines which was a, which was an issue and we are trying to produce indigenous weapon systems like artillery guns have started getting produced in india light nice. tanks have started producing in india and so the aim is to become self sufficient at least for our requirements combined with that is also the export now there was a report by drdo chief i think he gave an interview somewhere a couple of days ago to ani Uh, he has said that you know we have we have uh, 500000 crores worth of uh, stuff has been exported in the recent mm. past so no given to the indian armed forces given to the indian sorry given to the indian armed forces so the aim is to keep increasing the indigenous content in all our weapon systems so that you know we are not dependent on anybody when the time comes otherwise what happens if you are dependent something goes wrong on the border you have to keep rushing to get spares you have to keep rushing to get ammunition you have to keep getting to rush many many other things so those things need to be avoided and second thing is the moment you start buying things from abroad you use a lot of foreign exchange they are expensive mm. and you use a lot of foreign exchange so the defense budget if you want to make what they call as maximum bang for the buck is something that if you want to have then start making things indigenously and within the country and that is what we have been concentrating on for the last at least 10 years i can see it even before that we started but i think it has gained momentum in the last 10 years to a large extent and we are ensuring that you know you need to don't pick up things from outside if you can produce it in the country and sir uh, uh, like this this uh, give, uh, reminds me that uh, <coughs> this indigenization of weapons along with that recently indigenization of tourism was also a big issue because uh, people were talking about that instead of going to maldives we should go to uh, that is lakshadweep another issues <laughs> and that is because that is because of the way the maldivian leadership was behaving at that time and uh, we all visited know, china so he visited china element after, also and then he again after he came back he reiterated that indian should hmm. go out from this uh, vacate my country and uh, i have fought these elections on basis of this and we should uh, we should we don't want indians like lot of people ask us sir and like how is it going to help uh, a maldives and how does it help <coughs> china to be present there because there been reports that uh, research vessels military vessels would follow later so how does it help china and how does it help maldives it help china and how does it impact india negatively right it help china definitely because their presence in the indian ocean will increase okay now sri lanka has said that for one year they will not allow chinese ships to 
Chinese. With their, with after what happened with Hamban Tota. Yeah. So they 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 have said that they will not come for one year. For Chinese, definitely there is a benefit. But for um, if you look at the Maldivian uh, polity, depending on who is in the leadership, there has been you know shift in the uh, leanings towards either India or China. So the previous regime was considered to be closer to India, and now this one has started going to Russia. So I think our leadership will have the maturity to handle this. I don't want to get into how they'll handle it. No, that's their issue. But as far as China is concerned, China will definitely benefit in case they are able to allow. They, they are allowed to come and dock in, say, Maldives, and their influence in Indian Ocean region to that extent will definitely start increasing. Why is it uh, of importance to China? Firstly, the Indian Ocean region. You need to. Tell our viewers um, and our listeners, uh, you know, this competing interests between the Indian Navy and the uh, Chinese Navy in this region, in the Indian Ocean region. How uh, how significant is the threat that uh, Chinese ships in this uh, area? I think there are now five or six. Uh, uh, they have uh, in the Indian. They Ocean always region. have the. No, they always have anywhere between six to eleven. Six, six, six to eleven. That, that is there in the Indian Ocean region permanently because. Some of them going to this anti-piracy anti mission. Hmm. Some of them will be returning. Some of them will be doing some port call somewhere. So anywhere, but and some research vessels will be operating in Indian Ocean region. Anywhere between six to eleven, you can expect at any and point. And now there are these anti-piracy missions that India is uh, undertaking yeah. in this region. We have region. deployed almost about ten ships now. So now, tell us about the the situation where these two countries are uh, have competing interests in the Indian Ocean region. Why? And why is uh, China playing that role in the Indian Ocean region? Okay. One is that you know. Uh, let me first deal with China first. On the, mm. For us, Indian Ocean region is definitely important because that is our, uh, that is where our trade and everything ha takes place. A lot of it, and so we need to be having that influence. As far as China is concerned, they have something known as a two oceans theory. Okay, the two ocean theory is one is Pacific Island, one is the Indian Ocean, and Indian Ocean theater is the Secondary theater to the Pacific. And that is the way they look at it. They have something known as um, two seas and three boundaries kind of a concept. Uh, three boundaries are one is the North Korean boundary, one is the Indian boundary, and Vietnam. That is one. And then the two seas that they have, Pacific and the uh, Indian, Ocean. Indian Ocean region. That is one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. The second aspect is, as I told you, if Chinese are to become world power, mm -hmm. you have to have presence all across the world if you don't have that then you will not be able to influence incident that could happen anywhere like for example today if you look at the us it has got 800 bases small and big all over the world so that is how us will be able to react to any incident that is happening anywhere close mm -hmm. to these bases quickly so that is the way you need to have if you want to have worldwide influence that is the way you need to operate so, if you have to operate like that, then China cannot be rest remain restricted. If you want to become a world power, then he can't be restricted only to, say, West Pacific Ocean. So, it, it will increase. So, he has to come to Indian Ocean region. He has to move towards Guam. and hmm. uh, Because he has got the claim of first island chain, second island chain. If he goes to second island chain, it will go to Guam and then beyond. But so, there, there's the U.S. presence in Guam. Guam, of course, is a, is a U.S. base. Hmm. So, that's why you find... Many of the missiles, when they when they test and say, this is a Guam killer. Hmm. DF-26, when they tested, they said hmm. this is a Guam killer. 
So something will say is aircraft killer. So that, that is basically the, the mindset. Okay. So to that extent, if you see, Indian Ocean will become at some point in time an important ocean for China. So Chinese, one of the Chinese admirals, generals, generals actually, he said about 15, 20, 15 years ago, he said that Indian Ocean is not India's ocean. Hmm. So to that extent, the interest of China, Indian Ocean will be there and will keep increasing. And our interest is definitely there because we are, we are a resident power in hmm. Indian Ocean region and most of our trade happens through Indian Ocean region and we have our own relationships in this region. So we need our own influence. So you will find a, as we go by, you will find this, this competition. Heating up? Is going to be, heating up in the sense it may not become very physical, but you will find this push and pull happening, you know, the push and pull for influence happening. So, that mm. is something I think in the Indian Ocean region. And expanding to Africa, you see? Yeah. But see, expanding to Africa is already taking place. You look yeah. at the way China has gone into Africa with many of the projects and other mm. things. And also with fishing. They do a lot of fishing in the, on the shores of, eastern shores of Africa. So, there are a lot of things that are happening even now. Mm. So, we need to be prepared to handle this. And I am sure our Navy is taking care of it. So, I'll come to the point about uh, China provoking India as far as maps are concerned. I'm sure it happened when you were there too. So, uh, do the Chinese get provoked at all with regard to the map or is it very, or is it India which gets sensitive? I mean, they keep doing this and then the uh, chief minister of Arunachal, whoever is the chief minister then has to issue a, a counter and then there is social media which erupts. Then there is, you know, somebody else will, the political leadership, then there's opposition in India. Parallelly, does that happen in China among people there? Do people even bother? See, when I was in China, I used to see a lot of maps of India showing the Indian territory wrongly. Hmm. Okay. We used to point out whenever, at least in the official meetings, we used to point out to say that this map is incorrect. Hmm. But Chinese are very sensitive to their territory being shown as some something else. Hmm. Like for example... Uh, about few years ago, maybe four, five years ago, four years ago, you know, many of the airlines which showed Taiwan as a different country hmm. were not allowed to fly unless they showed Taiwan as part of China. Chinese are extremely sensitive to this. So they, they actually then take actions to ensure that, you know, it is shown as per their hmm. perception of that territory. Hmm. So, that is something that they are very sensitive to. Okay. So, you, they will continue to do this? They, they will think? continue to do that. And you, you you would have known the the visa issue. Hmm. The staple visa. You know, staple visas. You find the, um, with watermark hmm. of Arunachal being part of China, etc., etc., were done by them earlier also. Hmm. But then... You don't see them becoming pragmatic or realistic about the ground situation, even with regard to Kashmir. They are not going to change their view. I don't think they'll change their view. But they, mm. they react very strongly to the coverage that happens about them in Indian media. Not because only in Indian media, anywhere. It is not on, it, that kind of a reaction which you see mm. is because not restricted in only to India. In earlier talks, they would come and say that your media is very aggressive about Yeah, us. but then post-2017 Dolem issue, their media started became aggressive. Yeah. Started becoming aggressive. That is the first time in 2017 when Dolan was happening that their media went to town first. And from that time onward, their media has been active. 
So now, of course, they don't have a reason to say that you know, your media is hmm. doing this. Therefore, things are going out of hand. Their media is also equally to be uh, to be responsible. Should for we go on to the chip war? Okay. Uh, and uh, the between US and China and now Foxconn and India, where do you see this going? See, the technology denial regime, which um, which is generally being put into place to deny technology to China, has resulted in two things. One, Chinese have started investing more in SMIC, that is the semiconductor manufacturing industry of China. The, the investments into SMIC has gone tremendously high. And there have been reports that they have been able to produce mobile phones with 7 nanometers uh, chips. Mm. Even after the technology was being denied, there must have been some leaks somewhere. Huawei has produced that. I mm. think Mate 60 is, the, is mm. the phone, I think. That is one aspect of it, that they are trying to build things within their own country. But what is holding them back is actually the lithography machines which are required to make these chips, which the Netherlands has to give. Mm. ASML from Netherlands is the major company which supplies these things, and that is there are restrictions on on that lithography machines going to China. That is where the problem lies as of now. In between, U.S. enacted a Chips Act. They also started making foundries on the soil of U.S. Uh, in fact, TSMC of Taiwan is making that uh, factory and they'll start making it in four or five years' time. In between, we have started with Micron in Gujarat and Foxconn is again coming up yeah. in some form. So, what, it has ha what has happened is the supply chain disruptions that we faced in during COVID. COVID and beyond has brought in a sense that, you know, these things can't, the critical dependencies need to be avoided. Therefore, you find diversification. Therefore, you find, I mean, there are many terms that you can say, front-shoring, mm. on-shoring, near-shoring, mm. whole lot of terms are coming up. The basic thing, basic idea is that you should not be dependent on one particular source for your critical requirements. So that is why you find this thing happening all over the world. And to that extent, India seems to be in a better place basically because people are looking at India at a more friendly manner hmm. and you find people wanting to invest here, people want to come and you know establish manufacturing facilities here. So slowly and steadily, um, it is not going to happen overnight. So we hmm. should not have any hopes that tomorrow somebody comes and says, you know, I'm establishing a factory here and day after tomorrow the chips will start coming out. No. Hmm. It will take time. We need to have that patience. But as the time goes by, you will find from the lesser high technology uh, things that are required to make the chips, it will start progressing and you will find indigenous capabilities building up. Mm. But that is not to say that China will not be strong in chips. Mm. That point we need to keep in mind. Today, for most of our auto components, which are coming from China, it comes with the Chinese chips. And Chinese volumes are very high. The, they produced, I think, last year, 352 billion chips in a year, which means approximately a billion chips in a day. That is the kind of volumes we need to be looking at. Which is what, what do you think? Three years, five years, how long do you think that will take? We? Yeah. Ten years, minimum. Ten years. That is minimum I am talking about. The volumes are really high in China. Mm. That is the way that they actually conquered the world market by volumes. When, do you, when did they start? They started a long time ago. They didn't start now. 
they were good taking it easy because the world was dependent on them dependent on them and they were able to get what they wanted to get but when things are getting denied i think they have started investing more in internally to build that chips so this forget about competition we can't even meet the requirements uh for another 10 years what you're saying no, like no that, that is not the thing another point i want to con- through convey to the read, uh, readers and uh, convey to the listeners and the uh, people viewers. who are mm-hmm. watching is that for most of your applications today in the country you don't need such high end mm-hmm. chips okay okay you need anywhere between 28 and beyond is good enough mm-hmm. the 753 2 nanometer chips are required only for very high end applications for your normal running like your TVs your washing machines and everything else you need much higher nanometer chips which can be produced that should not okay. be a problem so what the competition seems to be actually in this high end chips okay where uh, to deny this high end chips to the to to the to the to china basically to ensure that they don't develop in science and technology too much okay. that seems to be the aim but for many of the functions you need much higher nanometer chips okay when you were posted in china sir tell us what it is like for an indian uh, military officer to be living in china in beijing what was what was life like there you know <laughs> is there shadowing like what happens in, in india pakistan, and pakistan? <laughs> no no i think chinese are little more sophisticated than that mm-hmm. i'm sure they must be watching as i don't deny that but it is far more sophisticated than what happens in i'm pakistan. sure your phone was uh, listened into that we were careful in any case you know not to okay. not to use it for purposes other than what is minimally required mm-hmm. and in any case those days phones were a rarity the okay. phones had just started coming in that mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. uh life in china was not difficult hmm i mean that that should be a surprise to many but if you look at the societies hmm. of both china and india i don't see a major difference we are attached to our families very much hmm. unlike uh, some other countries they are also attached to their families very much but western culture was creeping in that time into china and i am sure it is creeping into india also in some form as a as a as a person when i was moving around in in beijing or any other town in fact i traveled almost 80% of china during that time and beyond one didn't find a problem hmm. if you had known the language you could easily easily go through any of the places the other thing is the um, the availability of things in china at that point in time china was coming out of that you know old communist kind of uh, old i would say uh, restricted kind of living that they had at that point in time they were slowly coming out at that time and things were improving quite a bit indian sources are coming up and you know hmm. it's easier the first question they used to ask me was are you from pakistan hmm. because we look alike hmm. uh, and they are more used to seeing pakistanis in, indians and pakistanis are you know hmm. generally look alike and so look similar and so they used to ask, are you from pakistan the moment i used to say i am from india they used to start singing one song main aa raha hu oh god <laughs> so raj like kapoor russians raj kapoor was probably the best ambassador we had during the 60s and 50s mera juta hai jawani patloon hindustani fir bhi sar pe laal topi rusi fir bhi dil hai hindustani so where is the chinese in this it is not the question of chinese but it, that it resonates song. it resonates with their with their familial kind of behavior and the social kind of behavior hmm. okay. so that is why you find not only in china 
Russia, North Korea, and any of these places which had this uh, communist ideology at that time, Raj Kapoor's films were very, very popular. Hmm. So that used to be the trend. Recently, you find Dangal was a huge hit ah, in China. Yeah, correct. Yes. Okay. Even in Japan. The reason for that is simple. I told you, the family relations between in that society and in our society are almost similar. So okay. what appeals to them, what appeals to us as a society, appeals to them also. So the success story of a small time person or a small... Uh, yeah, you know, a that, huh. that shows the struggle, okay. that shows the way the person has come up in life. They identify with the, with that kind so of... So when a, you do your track two level and you, you meet, meet with the, the Chinese, is there curiosity about Indian society like... Uh, you know, like, uh, say, the Pakistani track to, they want to know about Indian food, Indian movies. Is that that kind of thing with the Chinese? That too? is slightly less. Less. Because, because the food habits are entirely different. Hmm. Our food habits and Chinese food habits are entirely different. The Chinese we get here is Indianized Chinese. Uh -huh, correct. Unless you but get there, the original. There's nothing about, like, say, when when you meet the Pakistanis, they, they are concerned about, or they want to know about Indian fashion, they want to shop in India. They want, But there's nothing like that about the Chinese, right? They don't want to come and shop in India. They don't want to see tourist places in India. Uh, there are two things to it. One is they have a sense of pride. Hmm. Okay. They feel that, you know, China is the best. And everything is available in China. So why would you go and buy anything from anywhere? That is one way of thinking because when I was there, one of the uh, one of the ladies who were working at our home used to ask me, why have you brought so many shirts from India? You get better shirts here. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of pride that they had in them. They have it even now. I mean that You can't fault them for it because it's a national pride. We also have a national pride, which is okay. And... Uh, in the track to dialogues, I don't think this social kind of thing get discussed much. Okay. Even even the offlines, I mean, on the sidelines when you keep discussing informally also, I don't think we we discuss these things. Like I've always seen that when you meet when I meet with say a Korean, when I meet with the Japanese or Indonesian, Malaysian, I'm just talking right now about the ASEAN group. Uh, forget about anybody anywhere else. There is a curiosity to know, to interact with Indians, to ask them about various things. You know, like you'll find somebody asking about the Indian caste system if you're mm -hmm. talking about Indonesians. You'll, they'll ask you about that. Uh, they'll ask you about Bodh Gaya uh, if you're talking to the Japanese. Even the Koreans will ask you, though there, there wasn't much of interaction with the Koreans. But with the Chinese, you'll say that they hardly talk to you. There's hardly any interaction or curiosity about India. Uh, is that just restricted to India or do they genuinely, are they genuinely not interested in anybody other than themselves? So inward looking. I get a feeling two things happen. One is, you know, there has been a lot of, um, you know, certain things don't work in China. Like WhatsApp doesn't work in China. Google doesn't work in China. Twitter doesn't work. Twitter yeah. doesn't work in China. So to some extent, the firewalling is something which could, but a lot of people travel out from China. They Correct. see a lot of things. Yes. They see a lot of things. And yeah. But you will always see when the Chinese tourists go out, they'll always travel in a group. Yeah. So they have a guy who holds the flag and then guides them around wherever they need to go. That is basically because of the language issues that they have. That is one issue. And second thing is to, it, it's better to keep it under a group so that, you know, it can be better controlled. So they see things from outside. They, they go to Western countries. They go to all kinds of countries. In fact, 2019, I was in Turkey. Busloads of Chinese were there. Mm. 
little before covid but even in spite of that i don't think they are very keen on uh, knowing things about india mm. because somebody was telling me in the recently in one of the dialogues when somebody showed a video of mumbai back home the exclamation exclamation was oh mumbai is like this the otherwise the the sense that they have is you know india is still backward mm. india is still you know a developing country kind of a thing so to that extent i don't think that kind of inquisitiveness still there in them mm-hmm. yeah i wonder when uh, you know that that kind of um, subtle aggression in not admitting that india is a rising power uh, when that will end or not wanting to acknowledge also that uh, we could be i guess nobody likes a neighbor to become more powerful or somewhat no, aspiring do. to be powerful we do we want our neighbors to do well oh that's <laughs> what we say yes no but we definitely mean it hmm. and if you look at the kind of things we have done in the neighborhood in the last few years have a look at it hmm. you'll come to know yourself yeah so we want, we have that neighborhood first policy hmm. so that is something that we do D- does china do people in china ever talk about uh, that they would have been better off being a democracy is that conversation no. even a part of it no you will never get that conversation anywhere you will never get that conversation basically because they feel that the kind of uh, standard of living that they have is because of the communist party of china hmm so you will not have that feeling coming up anywhere saying that you know we need democracy and things like that there are protests in china by the way hmm. those protests are not for democracy it will mm. be for environment it will be for certain kind of uh, land being taken away for development it could be for environmental reasons it could be pollution mm. whole lot of things could be there but um, this one is not there the next 5 years where do you see india china relations going and that will be my last question no problem uh, as i see it i don't think that it is going to improve much basically because um, unless the we have we have made this precondition that unless the boundary line of actual control comes to some kind of stability and we are not talking about resolving the boundary that will come much later unless that is a prerequisite unless that happens i don't see this relationship going very far far so uh, before i end i have to ask you about the dalai lama question since we are talking about china uh Uh, we uh, you know one would naturally ask because china said that they should be given the chance to choose the next dalai lama and of they course they said they should be given the chance they should they said uh, they will they will mm-hmm. choose the next dalai lama mm-hmm. so how do you see that panning out see um, that is a very um, we are actually looking in the future and ho uh, is all the dalai lama himself has said many times many things about us is succession and chinese are very clear in their mind that they will they are the ones who are empowered to hmm. do this us has passed acts on this particular thing to say that you know the tibetan people should have a say in, in so it is a, it is all up in the air at this hmm. point in time and it's, india can't take a stand on this right uh, i can't i won't say whether they can take a stand or not that is for the government to decide what they want to do but the you need to go back in history and see the circumstances under which we gave asylum to his holiness dalai lama and that was on the premise that he will not carry out political activities so that is one of the reasons why 
has already abdicated the political powers to the central Tibetan administration and he has got only the religious uh, things that mm. he does. So, to that extent, I don't think we are going to... Uh, our thing is, was on compassion, on, on other things, on moral grounds, etc. We gave him the asylum. I don't think that we are in any case... I mean, I, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to say at this point in time. Everything is up in the air for the future. But I think we'll have to wait and see as to how that pans out. Right. Thank you, sir, from uh, Ajit's behalf and my behalf. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you for watching or listening to this edition of ANI Podcast with Smita Prakash. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste Jai Hind. <laughs>